So before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is June 3rd, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman. I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking via video chat with Brian Bosma, who is also located in Indianapolis, Indiana, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, uh, when and where were you born? So I was born in Beech Grove uh, on Halloween, October 31 in 1957. Wow, okay. Um, my parents were uh, very civic-minded individuals and placed a very high premium on public service uh, with dad initially running for the mayor of Beech Grove in 59. Allegedly, I had a sandwich board on me in a parade that said, vote for my dad at the age of two. <laughs> And uh, mom was a school teacher. He was ultimately uh, elected to the General Assembly in 62 and then uh, took a very Goldwater break with all the other Republicans in 1964, returned in 66 to the House and then served in uh, the Senate from 1968 to 1983. Yeah, OK. So how did your family first get to Indiana? So uh, all let's see, three of four of my grandparents were immigrants from uh, my dad's parents from uh, from Holland, the Netherlands. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, my dad's dad from the Netherlands, and my dad's mom from Germany. Uh, and then both of my mom's parents from Germany. Um, and dad's family came over. There were 12, 12 kids, 10 girls, two boys. And uh, they came over in uh, 1908, 9, and 10 uh, after the family Bunderhaus uh, rode. You know, they had a big hotel. You got 13 or 12 kids. You have to have a hotel to run for them to live in. And uh, that burned in something like 1908. And they came over here in twos and threes. Ended up in Martinsville and Beach Grove, Indiana. Wow. Okay. So yeah, and then I'm, I'm not sure about my my mom's parents. Uh, early, uh, yeah. early part of the 20th century, also for them to come over. Okay. Cool. Now, uh, did you have any siblings growing up? I did. I had two older sisters, uh, Janice, who was 10 years older than me, uh, born in 47. My mom and my dad was overseas. Met my mom in Colorado Springs at uh, Fort Carson. Pin, you know, they got pinned before we uh, left for the European theater yeah. and uh, returned, got married, drug her back to Beach Grove, crying the whole way, she says, because of the mountain, not missing the mountains. And yeah. um, and then I had a, my eldest sister, Jim, in 47 and Rhonda in 50. Uh, Janice has passed away. Rhonda uh, is married to... Uh, surgeon and lives out in um, Annapolis, Maryland. Okay. Well, Jan, um, Jan was single all her life and lived right here in Indianapolis. Okay, interesting. All right. So how would you describe your childhood then, looking back? Uh, lots of hard work. Um, we owned a dairy uh, and, a, and a retail dairy store and a uh, soda fountain type of dairy store uh, on all on Main Street, Beach Grove, the farm and uh, dairy plant were, were not on Main Street. But uh, so from the time of seven on, I was, you know, employed by the family business and did everything from packing ice to ice cream and 
waiting on customers in the drive-through dairy uh, store and washing dishes in the uh, in the ice cream shop, and it's kind of like a brazier, you know. We had a grill and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, a lot of hard work, but uh, you know, happy family. Uh, as I mentioned, my parents both placed a high premium on public service, and I mean, di- dinner table discussion with uh, my parents and my sisters was. You know, what was going on in the world, what was going on in our state and our city, and uh, how we needed to be involved uh, to help. Uh, spirit-led family as well, uh, parents from deeply committed uh, Lutherans, and, you know, church every Sunday, lots of times on Wednesday night, too. Hmm. Uh, Mom ended up being a teacher at that at the school. It's over in Fountain Square now. Oh, wow. And, okay. uh, yeah, so, yeah, good, good family. Uh, Happy upbringing, lots of work. There was yeah. no idle time. I, uh, you know, played basketball in high school and junior high, and in high, once I had my driver's license, my one of my jobs was to be the clean the dairy bar, which was a pretty big facility, um, before the morning back uh, basketball practice. So wow. either that or the after they closed at ten o'clock the prior night. So yeah, plenty of work, uh, but pleasant, lots of fun too. Yeah. Okay. Jeez. Um, so spent a lot of time in the woods. We had a we, we had five acres behind our house that wow. were woods, and um, so we just we just spent a lot of time out there building forts and playing army and <laughs> throwing dirt go. clods at each other and <laughs> cutting trails, building tree houses. Lots That's of fun. awesome. All right. And uh, so, were your parents the most influential people in your childhood? You would say that. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. My dad, especially, um, I worked with him in addition to him being my father, just my boss. Yeah. Uh, so we spent a lot of time together. He was a no nonsense guy. Um, There's not a lot of kidding around. Uh, he actually had uh, was hospitalized with shell shock after the war. He was a you know witness at several of the death camps, and I think that profound. He was in artillery, so both the shelling and, and that experience profoundly affected him throughout his life. So he was super smart, very serious guy. Yeah. Um, and, but no doubt he taught me the value of hard work, applying myself, the need for public service. He, he was fond of saying that, uh, that, you know, this country has been so wonderful to our family. We need to give back. Yeah. Both, both his parents were immigrants. So and he was the firstborn of his big family in the country here. So he he pressed that on us. Sure. Uh, my mom was milder uh, and uh, soft-spoken, but, you know, could wipe a kid's nose in kindergarten. She was a kindergarten teacher and then go to dinner with uh, the governor and the governor's wife that evening. As my dad served in the, the legislature. So, um, yeah. They're no doubt the most influential, and my sisters too. Uh, my, yeah. You know, I was the kid brother, so yeah, that's I, right. I got a little fawning, but also a lot of <laughs> pounding—not pounding, but you know, kidding. Yeah, so right. had to be able to take it <laughs> naturally. Yeah. Um, how would you describe your educational experiences then, growing up? Yeah, strong. Um, I was, uh, you know, a top student, not the top student at Beach Grove High School. Um, and had uh, uh, some scholarships, not certainly a kind of full, full ride, but uh, some scholarship assistance based on academics. 
at Purdue University where I obtained my engineering degree. I took so many political science classes and history classes along the way that was a five-year program instead of four. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, met my wife there uh, as well. And then after graduation from uh, Purdue School of Engineering, I went to uh, what is now IU McKinney, then was Indiana University School of Law in Indianapolis. Um, and I, I struggled a little bit in engineering school, uh, mostly because I was not a dedicated as dedicated a student as I was to campus activities and a job. And <laughs> yeah, I was in student government and yeah, you know, involved with church. Uh, so, but I was still in the top 20% of my, uh, my, in my major, uh, ex- excelled at, um, in law school and yeah. did very well there and worked full time during law school as well. Sure. But good, good. All Indiana, uh, all good experience. Great schools, parochial, uh, Emmaus Lutheran, where my mom taught. So I had to behave. Right. right. Uh, yeah. So yeah, good, good, ed- good, all Indiana education. Yeah. Uh, wish I would have taken stronger advantage of it now when I look back and maybe applied myself in uh, undergraduate a little little more strongly, but had a, a broad background of engineering and humanities, which has served me well in both yeah. in uh, the political realm and in my in my professional career as well. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, so how did you view Indiana growing up as a state? I mean, obviously your father was, you know, uh, in the General Assembly for several years, so that would have probably helped you have more of an understanding than most people growing up. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I had a strong sense of, uh, of public service. You know, I met Ronald Reagan when he came here and gave the uh, gave the uh, speech in which he wanted to hand um, hand power back to the states. The federalism uh, speech that he made on the in the floor of the Indiana House. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I grew up, you know, I'd answer the phone at home as a kid and I'd say something stupid like, you know, Joe's barbershop when my parents were gone. And said, this is Governor Whitcomb and Senator Bosman. <laughs> I'm sorry, Governor. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I had an opportunity to meet a lot of uh, public servants as well, you know, top leaders in the state growing up. And, uh, and I had a very positive view of the of the state. Um course, as a young person, and you don't have to worry about taxes or, for me, yeah. employment, because there was more employment than I could possibly uh, handle in the family business. Sure. So, so generally, I, you know, I felt the state was a great place to grow up and uh, and for our family to be raised. Yeah. Now, when you went off to college, did you have a kind of a, a little bit of a change in your awareness of politics? Did you get more interested in it? You know, not so, not so much. Okay. Um, I was involved in uh, college Republicans. In fact, oh, about eight months ago, uh, the guy that was the president of the college Republicans said he just found a bunch of photos and he sent a picture of me and with you know, little big full head of hair and Dan Dan Quayle when he was running for his first election, and uh, it, it was just it was funny. So I was certainly aware. Um, yeah. My dad ran for Congress in 1978. Okay. So I took some time out of school. I, you know, didn't disenroll or anything like that, but I was, I was home a lot working with him, knocking yeah. on doors and doing things. Um, so uh, yeah, I probably had a healthy awareness more so than, 
your average college student. And I was involved in campus politics as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was more aware than your average uh, average person by far. Sure. And then in law school, uh, became involved in Marion County and, and ended up creating a Young Republicans Club in Lawrence Township in the northeast side that got to be big enough that um, we hosted the the state convention, and so I was I was fully engulfed by uh, by politics in uh, in law school, and then after graduation, just by two years, uh, ran for the general assembly myself. Yeah. Okay. Neat. Uh, when did you get married? So Cheryl and I were married the second year of law school um, in 1983. Uh, ironically, I dated her cousin in high school and hadn't really met Cheryl. Uh, cousin was a couple years younger than I was. So when yeah. I was up at Purdue, it, it didn't work out. And then the cousin's mom, Cheryl's aunt, said, oh, you have to meet my my niece up at Purdue. She'll be a freshman next year when I was a sophomore. So yeah. She's got a she's got a great personality. And I don't know, yeah, OK, well, I'll, I'll put that in the list of girls with great personalities. Uh, and then I was walking into the student government offices um, and Purdue at the time um, printed up a thing they called the freshman register and it was all freshman uh, senior pictures okay. in it. So, and you'd be shocked to know that the guys would, you know, pour over this and yeah. try to pick out, uh, you know, who, and I stick my head over and literally somebody says, look at that. And I said, Cheryl Hollingsworth, that's the girl with the great personality. So I, yeah. then I called right. Cheryl up. I was the little sister rush chairman at our fraternity. Okay. And, you know, I could still give the speech. It's not a dating program. Well, it was a dating program, pretty much so. Um, but I called and invited Cheryl. It refreshed her memory who I was, and I dated her cousin. And uh, her aunt had mentioned that we should, you know, meet and invited her to a party. And she shows up with nine friends, I think probably as bodyguards. Um, and so I, my joke is we pledged them all. Pledged them all as little sisters. So, uh, But so, yeah, that's how we met. And... Um, dated all through college and um, I will tell you they gave this they had somebody come in in law school my freshman year I'm babbling so if this gets too far off no you're totally uh, fine yeah, yeah. Uh, and gave this who'd gone through some kind of nasty divorce or something and this is an orientation and he says look to your left and look to your right if you're married you one of this or two of the three of you won't be married when you're out of law school and I'm like gee um, so I kind of pushed out our marriage timing for, for a year and she was finally, um, you know, we, we got to do something here. We call it the ultimato. Right. Um, so she's like, we're either going to get married or I'm moving on. And I'm like, oh, we're getting married. So we were married in, uh, I said 83, it was actually 1982. Okay. Um, and, um, which was my second year of, of law school, 40 years this year. So she's put up wow. with quite a bit. Congratulations. Yeah, that's, yeah that's thanks. Cool. Trying uh, to decide what to do for it. Yeah, that's right. That's a big deal. So um, now how many children do you have? We have two adult children. Uh, Allison uh, was born in 1988. Christopher born in uh, 1991. Okay. Allison is in Scotland at the moment. Uh, she and her husband on a little vacation. But she is a teacher at a parochial elementary school in Fort Collins, Colorado. And her yeah. husband's a CPA, almost. 
and then uh, Christopher is um, he is doing his medical residency at IU here in Indianapolis. Oh, okay. He met his wife when they were both doing medical mission work down in Haiti. She's from Carmel, of all things. Um, and they've been married for a while now, and six years maybe, and have a adopted a little uh, little guy who just yeah. turned a year old. So cool! Wow. So we're grandparents. So great kids, awesome. um, really awesome kids. That's probably. Cheryl left work uh, as soon as Allison was born. She worked for AT&T. And uh, while I lamented it at the time because of the finances, because I was still a student. No, I guess I was out of, yeah, I was out of school. But I went to, we went from two incomes to one, and I lamented that, but it was probably the best decision we ever made. They're both great kids, just fantastic contributors to uh, the community. Yeah, that's perfect. So, how did you first decide to get seriously involved in politics like your dad? Yeah, you know, that's that's difficult to say. I guess I recently had a high school reunion and I saw in my, you know, we had to do a self-fulfilling prediction of some sort. And okay. I said I was going to go to Purdue, get an engineering degree, get a law degree, meet a beautiful blonde and run for governor. So it must have been on my, you know, almost all of that is true. I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, so it must have been on my mind even in high school. Uh, it didn't really formulate itself into action until, well, you know, and I, as a kid, I worked on all kinds of campaigns. I you right. know, hung door mailers for Dick Luger when he ran for mayor, yeah. uh, for governor candidates, you know, did, would do walking volunteer stuff, mostly because my dad said, hey, we're going to go. Uh, but, you know, I always enjoyed it and met a lot of people that I still know today through those activities. Uh, so it didn't really become solid uh, until uh, law school that yeah. I knew I was going to, in some fashion, run for office. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and so when you first decided to run for the general assembly, you know, what was your campaign strategy? What were you, what was going yeah, through so, your head? Yeah. So Marion County is kind of different. Marion County at the time, it was, yeah. I'd say, special because it was a Republican county, had a very strong Republican organization. They went through a process called slating in which precinct committeemen endorsed candidates for the primary. Mm -hmm. And because of my, I figured out that I was recruited to, uh, to get involved in the Lawrence Young Republicans and be the president of it by folks who were dissatisfied with the then um, state representative for the area, uh, which is up in, on the Northeast, actually it was the entire East side at the time. And um, they were grooming me to, to run against him in 1986. So I actually went through the slating, you know, they again, suggested strongly that I file my candidacy for yeah. slating, which, which I, you know, wasn't like I was reluctant to do. So I was anxious to do so and did. And then this individual, Gordon Harper was his name, who was, who had served maybe for 10 years, um, dropped out before okay. the primary, uh, dropped out in February when slating occurred. And, uh, and then, so I was selected by the, um, uh, 
by the precinct committeeman to fill the vacancy as of May 10th, 1986. And I immediately changed from committee to elect to committee to reelect in November. <laughs> so, because I technically served for six months prior to the election. Wow. Um, and, you know, oddly, I, I don't have it on me, but I came across a campaign flyer uh, for that year. It may be here in the office someplace. I had it at the state house that, you know, had my picture with this giant head of hair, you know, glamour shot, Brian Bosma. And then the the items that were, that I said I stood for were uh, balanced budget, school choice for every family, uh, revived economy in our state, positive tax uh, incentives and levels for businesses to operate, and a few other items. Uh, ironically, um, when I became the speaker in the lead, Republican leader in 2020, I started doing an agenda every year, and that's very common now, but nobody was doing an agenda. No legislative group was doing an agenda then. And I just I, I came across, I'm doing some office cleanout, and came across one and from 2002, which was the Right Track Indiana plan. Okay. And I've got I've got them from every year that we uh, we ran, not just when we ran, but actually every legislative session wow. we had a had a written agenda as to what Jeez. we would accomplish. And uh, the, all those things that were on that initial list were all accomplished. There might have been one that didn't make sense yeah. in retrospect, okay. but I, I'm pretty consistent on all of those things over the years. Right. right. That's which surprised me a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, it's like I knew what I stood for today. I just didn't realize I stood for it in 1986. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Plenty of time for things to change if they were to. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Now, what was your family's reaction when you told them that, like, you wanted to run for the General Assembly? Well, there was no surprise uh, to anyone. Uh, First of all, my dad passed away, had passed away three years earlier. Okay. And I'd even contemplated running. Uh, to fill the vacancy in his Senate seat, but did not live in the district, and that was a requirement at the time. Okay. Uh, so he passed in '83 while I was still in law school, and uh, yeah, no one in my family, including my wife, was surprised in the least uh, that that I was going to be a candidate. My mom was thrilled. She was saving stuff for the Brian Bosman Museum uh, from my childhood. You know, my mom. <laughs> so she was exceptionally thrilled in fact right. uh, until she became unable to do so she kept very detailed scrapbooks for hmm. me and i have them dating from you know really 84 but 86 when i started serving probably through 2018 she started to become less capable of clipping actually it's probably before that probably about 2017 Okay. Um, but I mean, I went back and looked at them for a few things, and it's pretty darn detailed and chronological. So wow. pretty, pretty much so all coverage, you know, any news coverage or discussion in any of the political rags, that kind of thing that I would say. She posted it. I got boxes of stuff since she was uh, since she was no longer able to do it. 2016-ish, I guess, probably. So sure. I'll get it organized at some point. <laughs> there you go. Do you remember your main opponent in in which year? Uh, the their first year, first year they ran for the Yeah, I was well. There were several people that uh, 
appeared before Slating. I think Tom Morant was one who went on to be a good friend and uh, Warren Township trustee later. Um, I can't recall. I really can't recall who else, but there it was contested slating. But you know, when you've been groomed by the party to be there, right? It, it, it was not not too serious. And then slating continued until probably 2018. I think it was discontinued, and I didn't have any opponents in slating in yeah. that 30 after the first time, the 34 year period. Um, I did. I did have uh, some strong general election um, challenges, especially when I became speaker, yeah. uh, because the part of the strategy, legislative campaign strategy, is to keep the leadership busy, and that makes them, the, the leaders, the caucus leaders generally also run the campaigns around the state. Right. So if you can keep the leader busy at home, it makes it more difficult for him or her to raise money and coordinate campaigns around the state. So, yeah, I had I had three or four fairly serious challenges. Most were supported by the State Teachers Association. I was never their, uh, their poster child. I was their poster child, but not, not on the good poster um, because of school choice and some other. Yeah. yeah. Despite my huge support for teachers, Cheryl and I have 15 teachers in our immediate family. Uh, including our daughter, both our moms, you know, yeah. both retired, of course, but many more. Uh, so there were there were several that that were you know were strong. Uh, none of them close because of the district. They got closer uh, as time went on because the portion of my district in Marion County has turned from a uh, red to blue. Okay. Um, and uh, but the portions of Hancock and. Hamilton County that I had over the years, of course, were at the time were yeah. very red. And uh, so there was nothing close, but I, I couldn't ignore it either. Sure. Yeah, I understand. Um, so what did you think of like the election process then when when you were first running? What was it like? Did you enjoy the process or was there issues with it or? I can't identify any issues. Um, yeah, I almost did enjoy it. Uh, you know, would make a point to. So again, Marion County is just a little bit different. Part of the process was to attend a lot of Republican meetings. There were okay. probably four of those uh, a month. Yeah. For for different. Back when I had four townships in the district, I was actually elected the first time to a multi-member district um, that had three 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 representatives in it. Those were abolished in the 1990 one reapportionment. Um, so you had to go to the Franklin Township Republican Club and the Warren Township Republican Club and the Lawrence Township Republican Club, the Center Township Republican Club, yeah. in addition to the other campaign things that you had to do. So it kept you busy. Um, but Cheryl and I love people. Cheryl was you know, side by side. If you didn't show up with your wife, people would wonder. So, uh, you know, where's Brian's wife? Where's Cheryl? So, so you had to get dragged along to most of those as well. That yeah. start. And uh, so I enjoy, you know, we both enjoy tremendously meeting people. Yeah. Uh, you, you can get old when, when we, there's so many meetings, but yeah, we, we enjoyed it the whole way through. And the election process itself, always, you know, always good for us. Now, as the chairman of the House Republican Campaign Committee for 20 years, you know, I saw a lot of a lot of issues. Uh, some I probably have funded more 
election recounts than any person in our state's history. Yeah. Uh, starting with uh, Jim Adderholt in the north side of Indianapolis district back in 88, might have been 90. Um, and, you know, there's some really close elections around the state. Um, but we put together a very different type of campaign team, a professional campaign team, um, and kept them. And you know, consequently ended up with a big majority, big super majority. Sure. Maybe maybe more than is comfortable to try to work with. Yes. So, you know, success has its positives and sometimes its negatives. Yeah, that's that yeah, that's an interesting aspect of it. Because I wonder if like you, if you get so much of a super majority, then you start to wonder if the parties are shifting. We're going to have like two different Republican parties amongst. Exactly about fifty six. I've I've been in everything from a forty eight Republican, fifty two Democrat. Yeah. Uh, minority to uh, 71 Republican majority. And I'd say about yeah. and everything in between 56, 52, 60, uh, 50, 50 twice. Pick right. a number. And I'd say 56 is about the sweet spot. I tell people. Yeah. Because because not it, it, we just had 52 in my first speakership in 2005 and 2006 and if one person is not going to vote with you then everybody is the is the 51st vote yeah yeah um and if it's not a popular overly popular provision like leasing the toll road in northern indiana or adopting daylight savings time then you know every person who voted for it is the 51st vote and that's a campaign mailer yeah against them pressure yeah yeah yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but I, you know, I have no no beefs about the electoral process. I think Indiana runs good elections. Um, you know, there in that Jim Adderholt uh, election, there were actually in one precinct there were more votes cast than registered voters. Mm, okay. So, uh, but it was an all African American precinct, or virtually all African American mm-hmm. precinct, and we had to make the decision: Are we going to try to throw out all the votes uh, of African-Americans in this portion of District 86 or not. And the decision was, well, that'd be a terrible precedent sure. and <clears throat> poorly received. So so we didn't. So is there some uh, fraud in in the camp, in the election process? Yes, of course there is. Mm-hmm. Um, I disagree with those, even those in prominent positions mm-hmm. that say, you know, the elections are stolen or Right. There's massive fraud everywhere. I I, yeah. I disagree with that concept. And it right. just just isn't the case. Is there are there events? Are there mm-hmm. votes that are cast fraudulently? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we contested one in southeastern Indiana where a guy was actually convicted. A Democrat was actually convicted of fraudulently fraudulently collecting two thousand votes. Wow. Um, so yeah, for those who say there's no fraud, that's that's they're also right. not right. Right. But but it's not so prevalent that it's it's throwing, you know, national elections or even statewide elections one way or the other. Legislative district, yeah, it could happen. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So when you first got elected, what was your reaction to to winning your first ever election in the General Assembly? Well, uh, it was a little anticlimactic because I was already serving. 
right? I had, yeah. Uh, I'd had six, True. Yeah. six months under my belt. I actually served on a committee or two uh, as well. Uh, so it, it wasn't perhaps as climactic as it might be for someone who, you know, had never been around it. Oh, I, I left yeah. one thing out. I was also, after graduating from law school, uh, I practiced law for about a year, and then I was hired by uh, the superintendent of public instruction, H. Dean Evans, mm-hmm. and uh, who was selected to fill a to, to fill that role when uh, the former superintendent of public instruction was it was discovered he was running his campaigns out of the state house with state house employees. So uh, so I had spent two sessions, a long session and a very short session, at the state house as my yeah. job. And so, again, I was very, became very well acquainted with the process, became somewhat of an expert on education issues uh, uh, due to working with him. And uh, so, so again, it was, it was anticlimactic for me because I'd been around it. I grew up in the, in the building, uh, you know, visiting with my dad. I got caught up in the dome. I'm looking at the dome right now. I got caught up in the dome by the, yeah. Workers there when I was down there paging for my dad, and a door was open that had a circular staircase all the way up that I took. So, so I knew the place very well, and so it was. You know, I wanted to work. I wanted to work for Hoosiers, and I wasn't that excited about the hoopla surrounding the election. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when when you, like you were elected, did you feel like then you're kind of like carrying on your dad's legacy then? Yeah, there's no doubt there was a, a good bit of that. And a lot of the people that were there still had served with my dad. Yeah. Uh, who had just been there three years before when he passed away in office and was a had a prominent role in the in the Indiana Senate. He was the uh, assistant to the president pro temp. So uh, Bob Garden, who ultimately I became the Republican leader still with Bob uh, when mm-hmm. Bob was the uh, uh, still the president of the Senate, and I was thought he, and when we crossed straws, which we did quite frequently, I was thought he thought, well, this, this kid that used to page for my friend is running the show over there, and, <laughs> but uh, I doubt that I wasn't a pushover, I think. So <laughs> it, you know, it, it was good. I got thrown hip deep right away into um, finance. And education yeah. and environment. Those were my three areas. Of my law practice at the time focused on environmental matters, um, and then, which was a the first major education reform in Indiana in 50 years, and ultimately became a co-author, I guess co-sponsor of the bill um, in eight, the 87 session, my first full session. And uh, so, so I was, you know, I was all about. Oh, and I served on ways and means. So. Uh, I was all about getting getting the job done and doing it well for Hoosiers and you know, carrying on the family name and legacy as well, of course. Yeah. Which I never felt that I did to my, you know, my dad was the, quote, conscience of the Senate. And, uh, you know, it was just really a really well-respected guy. And so, but it, it was actually the last two years had been the first years with the exception of two in the last 60 years that Abasma was not serving in the General Assembly. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. I guess, yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, someone, one of your kids are going to have to go in and serve and 
Oh, uh, they both would be fantastic. Our daughter has said never, and our son yeah. is too busy trying to save uh, save the medical world. Okay. Save the world from their medical problems. So yeah, maybe someday. <laughs> maybe <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, they have to wait until grandkids or something. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, now I'm gonna backtrack a little bit. What what legislation was it? The name kind of got caught out because of yeah. Uh, Rose. Yeah, second. it was the A plus program for educational excellence. Okay. It, it was the large, then the largest tax increase in state history, mm-hmm. uh, adding uh, three or four percent to the, uh, not three or four percent, but taking the um, income tax from three percent to three point four percent, raising that's something like at the time three or four hundred million dollars, adding five, maybe ten days to the uh, education year. Yep. All right. We had the shortest school year in the nation. Uh, implementing uniform testing. We did not have a high step test at that point, so you couldn't tell if somebody was making progress or not. And uh, had teacher incentives and awards, school awards. It, it was a massive program. And Dean Evans was a highly respected educator and been the superintendent of Washington Township School System and had a very strong uh, opinion about how to improve education and it include charter schools and education choice as well so these were all things that i kind of learned at his side um, and then was able to uh, be one of the key sponsors of the legislation in 87 so you know it was a, it was a big challenge a lot of people involved in it so it wasn't just me um, mm-hmm. and uh, but it was it was an early positive achievement for the state and for me for me legislatively too. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you got into the general assembly, I presume that you probably didn't have a lot of you didn't probably have a, as big of a learning curve as other people because no. uh, your dad's experiences and and uh, everything going on. And so. I hung around the halls, the, yeah, the chamber and in committees for two years or two sessions. Yeah. Uh, with with uh, Dr. Evans. And um, so, yeah, my my learning curve was low and yeah. And the Republican leadership knew it, too. So they they put me in. Paul Manwaller was the speaker at the time, uh, put me in some key roles and gave me some, you know, assignments that didn't normally go to a uh, freshman. Yeah. And um, and it was because, you know, both family uh, family experience and personal experience in working with Dean. Sure. Okay. And how did you keep track of like the needs and wants of your constituents over the years? You know, you're you're out there when you go to all these meetings. For starters, people talk to you about what's important. Uh, as a member of Ways and Means, everybody under the sun testifies as to what they think money ought to be spent on, and you know reforms ought to occur mm-hmm. uh, you know if you're i mean if you that was one of the criticisms of my predecessor in that district is he never went to anything okay didn't listen to anybody yeah <laughs> uh, and so you know we were i, I can tell you in my in my later years i was a less adamant attender at local right. I had statewide responsibility as as the Speaker of the House and then campaign responsibility for everybody, not just myself. But 
early on, you know, for 10, 15 years, that was, that was where you were. And you went to dinners and meetings and neighborhood association meetings and people let you know what was on their mind, whether you wanted to hear it or not. So, uh, and, and frequently, and, and constituents reach out too. Um, I had a, one of, another one of my early bills, it might've been that first year also was to, uh, remove parental rights from uh, imprisoned, convicted rapists. Uh, at okay. the time, they, I should say convicted, not whether they were imprisoned or not. Right. There was a family that came to me and, and they wanted to have, a, they did not want to have visitation rights. They wanted to put a child up for adoption that had been conceived in rape and the individual, yeah. individual had been convicted of rape. Right. He still had parental rights under Indiana law. There was no exception. Wow. For that. Okay. So, um, again, that that was I don't know if that was a phone call or a letter somebody wrote to me, and probably a letter, and um, said they needed help, and you know, you get together with them and put together a proposal. A lot of times, that, that's where, honestly where a lot of legislation comes from. I'd say a quarter or more is from constituent outreach to their local representative or senator yeah another quarter probably come from uh from lobby organizations maybe more than that maybe a half comes from lobby organizations and then a quarter comes from uh from either independent thought of the legislator who hasn't been contacted by anybody or a product of summer study committees that kind of thing mm -hmm. so yeah. it, that's one great thing you know, people are saying, oh, don't you want to go to Congress? Don't you want to go to Congress? No. Uh, for starters, I didn't want to live in Washington, D.C., but yeah, uh, you can really impact people's lives as a legislator because you're, you know, we're in session for a couple of months, four maybe in long sessions, and then you're in your community. Right. You're at your place of business. You're at your church on or synagogue on Sunday, Saturday. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're out amongst them. So as one, one of my colleagues you should say they got to get out amongst them yeah yeah um, that makes and, sense and people people don't hesitate to I mean, this is back before social media where people would put, post their beefs online <laughs> yep. uh, uh, people didn't hesitate to approach you and say hey look i got a real problem or why did you vote this way right what are you thinking why are you so conservative why aren't you conservative enough whatever it may be you know yeah. they've got an opinion and they're sharing it yeah, that's interesting. I mean, did you do a lot of like door-to-door -door campaigning over the years, or in in some years okay. when uh, when they hosted a strong opponent uh -huh. that was going door-to-door? -door. You know, one year they had a gal that was on the Lawrence Township School Board whose name escapes me again, funded by the State Teachers Association. Yeah, and they had a little mini bus uh, all decorated up for her, and they would. You know, get a bunch of state teachers association and other folks who didn't particularly care for me one mm -hmm. fashion or another volunteer to go door to door uh, so so you had to do some of that but yeah not, i didn't honestly do a lot okay. uh, you know the, between mailing and media there's so many ways to contact people people sure. are impressed when somebody comes to their door they're also impressed when somebody comes to their door and leaves a mailer that's been signed by the candidate, whether it was the candidate that put it there or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, 
so you can have volunteers help with a lot of things as well. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine also going door to door, you never know whose door you're going to go to. It could be an interesting situation. Yeah, it could be extremely interesting. Back, <laughs> there was one time when Cheryl and I were going door to door. and uh, This is, you know, maybe eight years. This is the State Teachers Association candidate. Yeah. And we're going door to door, not too far from our house. And I'm walking up. There's a guy outside. And I said, excuse me, sir. I mean, I know who you are. Don't you come on my property. I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate your vote, but uh, wow, bye. Yeah, wow, okay, thanks. Okay, wow, geez, yep, <laughs> especially if it's a close. Lot of are to a lot of people are very gracious, thanks for your service, that kind of right? Thing. Right, yeah, okay, interesting. Yep, <laughs> um, was it did you ever find it like challenging to get support for a bill at all, or did you oh, just kind yeah. of sure? Um, yeah, uh, you, you have to, I mean, so I talked about our agenda items. Mm -hmm. Those were the bills that I, later in my career as a leader, uh, from uh, 2000 on my last nearly 20 years in the general assembly, most of my focus was on our mutual, mutually agreed upon agenda bills, which as a general rule, I came up with the the ideas for yeah um and then i would sometimes if they're very important like charter schools and school choice in 2011 i would author them myself or co-author them right to work in 2012 i co-authored with representative jerry tor uh the road uh, major road funding of 2018 which included a 10 cent gas tax increase i co-authored uh, so that that was where my last 20 years, that was where my primary focus was on those mm -hmm. agenda bills and being sure that our agenda bills uh, work through the process properly and, and were adopted into law. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> now, what was the first bill that you ever sponsored? Uh, I, I'm going to say it was one that I was the principal author of, yeah. the first one I remember was the parental rights okay. uh, removal for convicted felons. Yep. Convicted of rape, and the child was a product of the rape. Right, right. Um, that's, that's the first one I can remember. I could look back and maybe come up with something else. Uh, another one that I remember uh, very fondly was actually, wasn't my first by any means, but it was in 1994, I co-authored an early school choice bill, and that was when school choice was just being talked about around the country. Uh, and you know, we were we were way ahead of the curve. Could, didn't get it through till 2012, but uh, but 1994 that was an early an early effort as well. I think in '88, perhaps I uh, was the can't remember if I was primary author or primary sponsor. So authors, if it's a bill in your house, sponsors, if it's in the other house. So I was either the primary author or primary sponsor of the kid's first license plate. That was the first license plate that somebody could pay mm -hmm. 25 extra dollars for, and it would go into a special fund. And this was for kids that had been abused and neglected. 
uh, and a fund, special fund for them. So that was an early effort also in 1988. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, how often would, did you have to like work with the other party to get legislation done? I guess it depended on the year, of course, but yeah, uh, almost always. So about yeah. half of my career was spent in the minority. Half of my 34 years was spent in the minority or 50-50. Yeah. So uh, you had to work. First of all, you didn't have any authority, so you had to get some, could only get something done through the other side. Uh, but I was always a strong advocate of, of bipartisanship in, let's see, my second session or my second election, 1988, we, we were 50-50. Mm -hmm. And literally my best friends at the legislature were Democrats. It was John Gregg, it was Mark Carmichael, uh, who recently represented the beer distributors. It was uh, Mark Cruzan, who went on to be the mayor of Bloomington. Uh, Mark and I, this is another early effort, in 1988, were the co-authors of the state's Underground Storage Tank Cleanup Act. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we were hand in hand on that. Uh, when we ultimately got into a big majority under my speakership, I, I remember telling the caucus, and I told them every every session, that with, you know, people like, yeah, we got a super majority, we can do whatever we want to do. Mm -hmm. And I told, I lectured them, really, that a super majority requires more cooperation, better communication, and more bipartisan outreach. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just the opposite of what you think. It's not, we don't need to worry about those guys walking out. It's we need to be sure everyone has had the the opportunity to participate. And uh, the fellow that was speaker before me was not fond of following the rules. Okay. And uh, wasn't fond of letting people speak that had opinions differing from his. So, uh, which frequently focused on me as the minority leader, not being allowed to speak or make a motion or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And I vowed to my caucus and ultimately to the body, if, if elected the speaker and, and when elected the speaker, I would I would be very inclusive. And uh, I kept that promise, uh, allowing something like seven hours of debate on the lease of the toll road mm -hmm. in 2005 and similar long periods of debate, which would never have happened before giving everybody an opportunity to speak without being interrupted. Yeah. Savings time and some of the other school choice, some of the other large initial, oh, right to work. Uh, that, that one went for hours. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I told my team, it's, it's important that we let everyone have their say and then, and then win. You know, right. we've got the votes, but let them speak and don't, um, don't interrupt them. I mean, yeah. if somebody gets way off topic and then the speaker has to step in. But I vowed to be inclusive, and I have recently had uh, some Democrats that have come across, <clears throat> excuse me, at various functions say, boy, do we miss you. We didn't understand. We didn't understand you were trying to protect the institution and the members and give us all a shot at participating. Boy, do we miss you. Wow. So I guess couldn't say that while I was there, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, things change, I guess. Yeah, yeah I guess. Um, so 
what were the air actions like overall throughout your career from the 80s to, you know, when you left in, in terms of the relationship between Democrats and Republicans? Yeah, they changed. Uh, okay. I used to say that um, it was like old time championship wrestling, which which predates you, that there was a yeah. championship wrestling. It became ultimately you know, all superseded by the WWF or whatever they are now. Right. But there was a local championship wrestling syndicate and they had them all over the midwest dick the bruiser and yeah. sultan and all these guys I used to watch it with my grandma who who's a fan um <laughs> and i used to say it was like championship wrestling everybody comes out and beats on each other and then yeah. you know goes back in the locker room and has a beer together right about the kids that kind of thing and it was like that uh at the start of my legislative career that two 50-50s changed that exceptionally. Uh, I, that's what I blame it on, the two 50-50 splits, uh, because it people were discouraged from hanging out together, you know, kind of keep with your Democrat or Republican team, mm-hmm. um, especially the second one around. The first one was in 88. The second one was like, I don't remember the second one was, 86 maybe. Uh, but that I saw a distinct change. Yeah. And the other thing that makes it difficult is the campaigns can be so nasty. Um, yeah. Okay. Sure. The the mailers and commercials that are done can be they can hurt people. Yeah. And and they bring that animosity back with them to the process. So I made when I was in charge of the campaigns for twenty years, I made our guys run by the nasty stuff by me because they didn't care because they're, you know, political consultants. They don't have to serve with anybody. They just want to win them. Right. And yeah. Throw bombs and say, this guy's a bomb and, you know, a cheat and everything else. And uh, so, but you don't have to work with them. I'm going to, after the elections, yeah. if, if, if they aren't beaten, I've got to work with them. So yeah. uh, they sneaked a couple by me. Uh, but that, I think that's that's probably one of the most difficult areas for people mm-hmm. to heal from. They take it personally. There's one lady legislator, ex-legislator, that I tried to get to switch parties mm-hmm. uh, because she was a very conservative individual and gave her every opportunity to do that. And and then, you know, the team beat her in the election with you know, pointing out her votes and her walk out to Illinois and yeah. all the things that she didn't want people to have front of mind as they voted. And she still is, when I come across her, she's still not very friendly. Mm-hmm. So those those things can hurt people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's contact sport. Whether whether people like that or not, it's, it's a contact sport today. So Yeah, that's interesting. So it just seems like over time then, and I've heard a lot, of, a lot of, I guess, former legislators echo this now that it just things got more and more aggressive. Um, yeah. Well, so much was on the line, and it was so close. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Back in the day, it hasn't been now for ten years, but yeah. it was so close prior to that, and went back and forth so many times. Uh, the other thing I told our caucus when we had the seventy thirty supermajority. I had uh, had our staff go back and look at all the 
super majorities in the past. And there was one, I can't remember the year. It was around maybe civil war. No, it was around prohibition. Okay. And it was 96 Republicans to four Democrats. And whatever the Republicans did the next year, it was like 80, 20 Democrat. So, yeah. So it was this huge swing. And I think it surrounded alcohol, you know, and prohibition. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'd use that as, uh, as a, just an example to people about having to work together, you know, having more communication, more cooperation, more inclusion rather than less. Because yeah. as John Gregg used to say, the worm can turn. Mm-hmm. So by the time you were leaving, did you have, do you have, or I mean, I guess at this point, you will see like a few years out now, but uh, do you have hope for that things will become a little bit uh, less aggressive? Or do you think that we're going to be still in the kind of aggressive era of politics for, for the time I, being? I, I'm not sure it's ever been non-aggressive. I mean, right. if you look back at the, uh, about the uh, Jefferson Adams campaign and the horrible things sure, that yeah. the reporters said about each other. Right, right. Different medium. It was just a newspaper was all that was available at the time. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't know that it's ever, it's never been gentle. We think about sure. it, you know, we had this you know, stylized view that, oh, it's it was a, you know, gentleman's game. Yeah. It never has been really. But it would be, and I think social media has multiplied that exponentially. Because people will gladly say something online that they would never say to a person's face. Right. Yes. That, um, yeah, social media is pretty insane. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that I'm fond of saying the Republic will survive. You know, when somebody says it's the end of it, it's, oh, the Republic will survive. I become somewhat I become somewhat less convinced of that over the last couple of years on a federal level. OK. <laughs> uh, but. You know, Indiana's in good hands. It's been in good hands under Republicans and Democrats, whether Mm -hmm. I've agreed with their approach or their policies on the other side. You know, everybody, almost, I should say, almost, almost everybody is there because they want to make Indiana a better place, not because they want to screw Indiana up. Right. So now their policies may have that effect, theirs (laughs) or ours. Yeah. uh, May have that effect, but that's not the intent. Right. Everybody wants to make you know, do their best to make Indiana a better place to live. Makes sense. Um, I guess analyzing a different dynamic, what was the relationship between the House and Senate when you served? That's interesting. Um, Early in my leadership, um, as I indicated, I was the Republican leader 2000 to 2004, then the Speaker 2004 through 2006. And Bob Garton was the Senate leader at that time. I was, things in Indiana were about where Bob wanted them because he had been the longest serving president pro tem of the Senate, uh, pretty much so reigned over the legislative process. And I had a lot of reform ideas uh, that he did not agree with, such as repealing lifetime legislative health care, which I did administratively in 2005, 2006, after begging Bob to do it as well. And he, he would, he was beat in the primary, the subsequent primary, and 
really by fellow Republicans that, that were upset about gaining, he'd stop gaining from moving forward. But they beat him over the head with that lifetime legislative health care thing, and the Speaker of the House repealed it, and you didn't. Uh, he's kind of always blamed me for his defeat. Um, so, so with Bob, things were not as smooth. Again, I because he'd known me since I was ten. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always thought he viewed me as you know his friends' page kid, and yeah. not as an adult leader of the Indiana House or Republican Caucus of the House. So I would say they were fair. Uh, we did not have any joint agenda type mm-hmm. of items. We rarely. Uh, had joint press conferences together, although we did have some with Mitch. Uh, now, then, then Bob left and David Long became the Senate president pro tem. He and I had an extremely good re- uh, relationship. In fact, I think it was probably the best relationship, at least in institutional memory, between the House and Senate leader and, and our uh, governor, which was Mitch at the time. Okay. Uh, you know, like subsequent, and not that we didn't disagree, we did, but we would uh, treat each other with respect and try to help each other where we could. There's lots of crazy ideas that come out of both chambers, and which the leaders don't want. The leaders don't right. want the headline to be Crazy Bill A. They yeah. want their agenda to be the headline. So we work together to sidetrack a lot of those things. Um, and we worked together for I don't know, 10 or 12 years, I guess. So we became good friends. I just texted him a couple of days ago. Uh, but that was cultivated over a decade. You know, that mm-hmm. kind of relationship was cultivated over a decade uh, or more. And it it probably doesn't exist at the moment, not because the people aren't uh, capable of doing it. They certainly are. It's just that, you know, they're both, both the speaker and the president pro tem of, you know, a few years under their belt, both of them, and weren't able to see all the behind the scenes things that leaders were able to do, you know, for 20 years. Really. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, how influential was party leadership to dictating which legislation makes it through? To us? Yeah. To uh, the, the just in general, like, yeah, if it gets, yeah, to you I, we, or, yeah. Yeah, we took no, we took no. Uh, instructions from either party leadership, mm-hmm. frequently not from the governor. Uh, yeah. So the legislative leadership in both chambers is, in my experience, the driving force for what legislation passes and what does not. Now, that does not mean you don't work with your party leadership. And I can only speak about the Republican Party leadership. Yeah, It was a rare occasion when somebody came to me and said, we have to have something. One was uh that they came to me on that i always regretted was license branch reform that they opposed because they got a percentage or some stipend from license plate sales went to the state parties i i felt bad after that's one vote i'd looked at over the years and i wish i hadn't voted for that okay Uh, because that was at the then party chair's kind of demand i was not leader of caucus leader at that time. Well, I guess I might have been the floor leader, the number two guy. Um, now, the caucus leadership puts a great deal of pressure on, on yeah. the caucus members to to pass legislation. Sure. Uh, and 
you know, some of that comes from, honestly, some of it comes from contributors, people who have been instrumental in uh, making, putting a majority together. Uh, my philosophy was always, if it's good public policy and, and somebody you like wants it, great. If it's bad public policy and somebody you like wants it, or you know, somebody you feel like you owe wants it, that can't be the that can't be the dictating force. I'm not saying it isn't ever, yeah. but it shouldn't be. Um, it needs to be good. And I've got plenty of examples that I'm not, not going to use because it'll point right to you know one or two people. Right. Uh, but it it has to those interests have to align. And if it's good public policy and it helps someone who's been supportive of you, you can prioritize that in my view, um, and be sure it, it moves forward. If it's bad public policy, uh, we got to let, I, I let those things go. I can't mm-hmm. point to one that I, other than the license brand thing, yeah. that, I, that I can uh, point to and say, oh, that was bad public policy and we supported it because somebody wanted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, with few exceptions, the governors that I've worked with had very similar aspirations for our state. Now, when I can think of that where we crossed was with my good friend back to law school, Mike Pence, who wanted to adopt a, a really, I always felt in preparation for whatever he was going to run for next, mm-hmm. the same tax cuts that Kansas Governor Sam Brownback, who had the same campaign team, okay, yeah. uh, was advocating. And it was across the board. It was a 10% cut in income tax. It was cuts in sales, cuts in all kinds of taxes. And, you know, we had set the state up for the next. My team had adopted, you know, with the governor and Senate and others, um, 15 tax cuts in 14 years. In fact, (laughs) I just came across my tax cut timeline. Oh, wow. Okay. I showed all these. Yeah. And, uh, and I just said to Governor Pence, no, we're not going to do this. And yeah. we're going we're to repeal the estate tax first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, and, and you can't cut the lifeline of the state out just because it's good times, because there'll be bad times soon. <laughs> yeah. And he hadn't been there to see that. I'd seen good times and bad times both. Right. You know, very difficult budget years. And I'd seen budget years where we put 10%, 10.5% more money into education. Yeah. So, you know, I'd seen the high and the low, and Mike and not. And uh, he was very upset about that. We gave him a 5% income tax cut phased in over a period of time, and he was really upset about that. But the vindicator was, two years later, Kansas adopted the whole package. Yep. Two years later, they came back and raised had to raise taxes because funding for education had tanked yes. because yeah. of tax cuts. So. Yeah. It's it's good. I mean, there's a reason that there's a balance of power, separation of powers in Indiana, because your executives come in usually with short term vision. Yep. You know, their their term, maybe their second term. Um, and some of the long serving legislators have a much longer uh, view. And when I became the leader, I I said that you know legislative long term planning had been for years gee, what bills are the Senate going to send over to us in the second half of the session? And uh, it's that said, we need to look a decade down the road and see where we want Indiana to be, where we hope, what our aspirations are for our state 10 years from now. And every day, 
make progress toward those goals. And we, in fact, did that. Uh, and that was where the agenda came in. And, uh, and I had something like 72 items on my checklist, um, things that needed to be improved in Indiana. And we've hit almost all of those by the time I stepped away from the speakership. Yeah. Okay. Wow. The, the one that I never felt that we fully engaged on, one of those was make Indiana the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Okay. And then right before I retired, there was a battery company coming to Franklin, I think, Indiana, uh-huh. Exide or somebody. And I was listening on, on the radio to the news and they had the CEO on. It was the day after they'd made the announcement. They were playing the CEO's remarks. He said, we're coming to Indiana because Indiana is the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Check mark. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I think there's a way to go before that. That's reality. But Right. Yeah. yeah. Some signs, perhaps, for the future. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I guess when it comes to tax cuts, there's always a, a balancing act of uh, making sure you don't do it too much where you can't fund general state procedures. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's always a, a gamble, I guess, depending on you know, how much you decide to do. You you have to plan it. And um, Indiana's done a very good job. I was a little concerned, actually, this year. Of course, I, my opinion means my, nothing anymore, but I shared with the two <laughs> legislative leaders. Yeah. Be cautious about their tax cut plan, which the House was advocating. I actually spoke with Rod Bray in the Senate mm-hmm. that, you know, times are great. The coffers are full. We got all this federal money that you know, buoyed everything up. And so yep. you've got, you got a lot of money in the till, but the, the times will change and you're making permanent decisions uh, of you know revenue cuts that you may regret later. Yeah. So when we had one of, my and my Ways and Means chairman, Tim Brown, and before that, Jeff Esbeck, what we did when we had lots of money is we'd find one-time projects to uh, to fund rather than either upping the stream. The okay. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I would have that updated That's every interesting. year. Yeah. Just came across, again, I told you I was cleaning stuff out, so I just came across that. Dating back to the auto excise tax cut back in 95. This one just goes through 2015. I have one that goes through 2017. Exempting small businesses from personal property taxes, freezing farmland property taxes, uh, paying $327 million in unemployment insurance taxes on behalf of, of uh, companies, employers. But yeah. we, we paid off record amount of debt. Uh, during my tenure, and mm-hmm. it wasn't just me, it was our governors, um, both uh, Governor Pence and especially Governor Daniels. We had a mortgage burning for the state office building. Uh, we just paid off all kinds of outstanding debt, making us one of, one of the lowest per capita debt states in, in the United States. Yeah. So that's where, that's where we tend to put excess money, or we paid cash for projects that would normally And sure. uh, then, you know, you're permanently increasing the income, I'm sorry, the expense stream, nor permanently decreasing the revenue stream. Um, So, but as I say, the Republic will survive, at least we hope so. Yes, let's hope for the best, yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, let's see, how influential were like lobbyists and stuff when you served the General Assembly? You know, they are, it's got a bad name, 
course. Yeah. Not. Oh no. Right. Uh, but they they are an, an essential source of uh, information. Mm -hmm. And the legislature, of course, itself is part time. We have limited research staff. We do have research staff, but it is not. Yeah. It's not anywhere near what you see in some states or like in Congress or something like that, where they just got sure. droves of people who are spending all kinds of time researching issues. So you have to rely on on the lobby community for for information. And, you know, we say lobbyists. Ooh, well, you know, the Girl Scouts have a lobbyist. Uh, taxpayer union has a lobbyist. Um, the groceries have a lobbyist. The small business association has a lobbyist. And the beer wholesalers have a lobbyist. There's a thousand, yep. you know, thousand different community organizations. You know, builders association has a lobbyist. City and county government and township governments have lobbyists. So, uh, so these people aren't. They, I know they're. You say the word people cringe, but it's, right. it's really folks who are providing information and advocacy for their clients. So now they're they're good lobbyists, the vast majority, and then there are some that you have to wonder about. Okay, <laughs> and you you learn pretty quickly who the ones are where they give you information, and you got to double check it. Yeah, yeah. Good lobbyists will tell you, well, here's here's our position now. The opponents will tell you X. Right. Uh, you know, the other side of the coin is this. Here's the downside, that kind of thing. So, but they're, they are an essential part of the process. And, uh, well, if you didn't have, they're overregulated, and I get that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they're, I can remember early in my career coming into the parking lot. And a lobbyist, an unnamed lobbyist, loading into an unnamed legislator, a brand new set of golf clubs. Wow! And that was allowed uh, yeah. because there were no there were no rules against this. And yeah. one of my advocacies and ultimately achievements was to really tighten up our disclosure laws. Yeah. To require anything over fifty bucks uh, in a day to you or your family or somebody or an employee to be reported now yeah. there are some states that have no cup of coffee rules you can't buy a cup of coffee i, I think that's ridiculous because I, right. I buy my cups of coffee all the time yeah. I buy business lunches and if somebody's gonna buy a business lunch that's fine if somebody's gonna take somebody on a trip to wisconsin to golf i always discouraged i've never did it myself and i always discouraged legislators yeah and lobbyists uh from doing it allowed but it has to be disclosed so mm -hmm. So, yeah, but they are, the vast majority of them are honorable, uh, you know, smart, informative people that are an essential portion of the process. Do you think people who get sort of these larger gifts from lobbyists, do you think that they're influenced at all by that? Or is it just kind they, of hit? They claim not, but, okay. you know, you got to wonder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's probably the. You know, the, the Wisconsin, it was kind of an annual event, maybe twice a year. The Wisconsin golf event was the only one I really heard about and cringed. Mm -hmm. um, there, was a, there, there was another one. There was a time when there was a standing uh, standing open tab at one of the local establishments here mm -hmm. that, okay. uh, that a lot of the legislators resided at. And I didn't even know about that one until... 
you know, I was at, I was there having a cocktail with a group. And somebody said, yeah. well, you want so-and-so to take care of that? I said, no. <laughs> I said, well, they're taking care of everybody else in here. Uh, so I shined a light on that one pretty quickly. Yeah. And that came to a close as well. At least I hope it came to a close. <laughs> Again, I, I have no authority now. So. Right, right. <laughs> Different position. Yeah. Yeah. How influential would you say like gerrymandering was when you served? You know, we, I, I drew maps in 2001 mm-hmm. from the minority and we actually made some changes. John Greg and I together agreed to some changes to the majority's map. Uh, drew them, of course, as the speaker in 2011. Okay. Uh, it, it has some impact. The, well, let's see. 2000, the 2002 election, I think we had something like 58% of the vote and statewide and 48% of the legislators. Mm-hmm. And that's what I touted. Well, we won the majority in 2004, and that was only four years after the Democrats had gerrymandered maps. So... National events, honestly, have a greater bearing, um, I think, than anything else. Now, I think part of the supermajority, some of it has to do with with map drawing. Yeah. But part of the supermajority problem now is that uh, it's candidate recruitment. the Democrats have not done a great job of recruiting excellent candidates. And when they have recruited excellent candidates, generally they've won, even in districts that were uphill. Yeah. So I think it's more about the person, about their local influence in the community and the national events. You know, people don't like Donald Trump. That's a problem. People don't mm-hmm. like Joe Biden. That's a problem then will impact both legislative and congressional districts and races, obviously, this, this fall. Sure. People's attitude about the president. Um, but, it, but it has some role. Yeah. Some role. And it, it makes what that it doesn't mean there's no competition. It means the competition then is the is the primary. Yeah. Um, and it's it's hard. It's harder to. It becomes harder to do what somebody would call gerrymandering uh, or try to predetermine the election when so much of Indiana is rural and so mm-hmm. much of the population is urban. Yeah. Right. So you, you have to draw these huge legislative districts in rural areas that are going to be Republican, no matter who's running just mm-hmm. because of the people who live in rural communities. Um, and the, Democrat seats will be located in the urban areas like Indianapolis and Fort Wayne, South Bend. Yep. Because that's where the, you you draw them small. Right, right. And and the federal, you know, there's federal laws that that regulate if you pack or crack, you know, minority communities. And Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no doubt it has some role, probably not the outsized role that some people think. Yeah. Okay. Um, so based on your experiences, you know, with the legislative process for so many years, is there anything that 
you would change about the legislative process? Well, I think the changes I wanted to do were implemented. More disclosure about, there are some people that, I don't know if there's anybody now, but during my leadership term, there were people who were lobbying in other states mm-hmm. who had undisclosed to the public, I mean, we knew them, yeah. that undisclosed relationships with lobbyists that might be family members. Hmm, okay. Uh, and business relationships with family members that might not be disclosed and might be impacted by legislative action, like let's say nursing home mm-hmm. uh, legislation. And so we expanded greatly what had to be filled out and who was prevented from doing what. We put a one year cooling off period before somebody hit the lobbyist uh, roles after they left the legislature. I suppose one thing that I would consider a reform that needs to happen is the uh, those who don't fill a term, not by death, but because they step down, and okay. then then a replacement is selected by the precinct committee. And that that should probably be a special election. It is in many is, yeah. in, is in many states, but it's also expensive. I mean, a special election like that. Last time I asked, cost cost the local community fifty thousand bucks. Wow. Okay. So um, I really can't think of any. I mean, I wish the this is a wish, not a reform. Yeah. I wish parties were able to get along better, and that that some of the underlying tensions, whether it's racial or political or whatever it was, those would be soothed by some fashion. In some fashion, I sought to do that as much as I could. Uh, as a leader, as a leader of the of the chamber, but you know, sometimes we're just in here. Yeah. But I can't yes. think of any yeah. big reforms that should happen. Right. Okay. Sure. Um, let's see. What would you say was like the most controversial legislative issue when you served? Yeah, I, I'd say right to work. Uh, it had been introduced for many years. It was the primary reason that the Democrats. Uh, walked out to Champaign-Urbana in 2011 and stayed there for 35 days, the longest legislative walkout in the nation's history. Mm-hmm. The National Conference of State Legislators confirmed that because previously it had been the 31 or two days that the Texas Republicans had walked out during redistricting in 2001. So they knew exactly what the number was. Um <laughs> They had up to 14,000 union advocates, whether they were paid or volunteers is still a debate, mm-hmm. uh, that were protesting at the state house, many with nasty slogans on their signs with my name attached to them. Wow, okay. A couple, couple hundred protesters at our residence out in Geist. Geist. Um, That, that was no doubt the most controversial. Um, mm-hmm. Also, the best thing that could happen for our state, the actual adoption of it, which we took off the table. They wanted school choice, charter schools, and right to work off the table and a list of 10 other things, Yeah. which I kept telling Pat Bauer that, you know, the day you come back, the agenda is going to be exactly the same as it was. Mm-hmm. And they ultimately did come back after 35 days, and then we took one item off the table, and that was right to work, and then knew 
that they could not walk out for any extended period of time in the following year. So we enacted it in 2012. Mm -hmm. So that would probably be the most controversial. There's, there's one more, and that was the, um, oh, it was the marriage, the, RIFRA, there we go. Mm. Uh, restoration of Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA, okay. which was actually, let's see, that's probably, it was Mike Pence, so I think that was maybe 2016-ish. Um, so we subsequently found out, it, first of all, the, the statute didn't do what was, it, it actually came out of 15 law school professors, most of whom were pro-gay marriage, mm -hmm. uh, who wanted Indiana law to be clarified uh, as to when religious freedom and uh, government action intersected because Indiana case law was unclear in this regard. Okay. And so I looked at the law. I didn't see anything terribly wrong with it. It passed both houses. And then what we came to find out was there was this national alliance that was going to, there were six or seven states that had this under consideration that year, 2016, I believe. Mm -hmm. And North Carolina was getting ready to pass it. And they ran into some sort of parliamentary problem. And it got held up for three or four days. And we passed it first. Okay. And then Mike Pence had that signing party, which you may recall had mm -hmm. Jewish rabbis and uh, little sisters of the poor nuns and some well-known ultra-right advocates at it, and it just exploded yeah. uh, with a national explosion. That would, that would equally be uh, on the most controversial list. And then we spent, you know, David Long and I got together and, and put together a compromise along with corporate leaders from around the state uh, sit in my office and we're talking about options and we enacted a trail bill that allowed mm -hmm. local communities to do what they're doing now and that is to adopt the human rights uh, ordinance if they desire to to put folks that are whatever you know whatever category they wanted to put into their uh, non-discrimination ordinance that could do so so that went on for weeks was the subject of national attention yeah um so that those would be the two that i would say during my term were the most controversial okay what about like the most complex most complex well that's probably going to be the road the record-breaking 30 billion dollar road funding okay program that we adopted i think in 2018 i may be off by a year in all of these uh, that took years of advocacy um, mm -hmm. bringing people together uh, it was controversial because it had a 10 cent gas tax hike i've never heard boo about that from anyone uh, at the time there were a few tax advocacy groups that had not much in the way of following that were highly critical of it. Interesting. So gas tax hike displays good governance because it was a user fee that we yeah. uh, adopted that only people who were using the roads are going to pay for it. Right. And, but it, it had a lot of moving parts. You had to decide what to do about electric cars. You had to decide uh, what to do about people traveling through the state. Yeah. 
you had to decide where the money would go, how it would be used. And it was, it was a multi-year and multifaceted uh, piece of very important legislation. And I'd say it's probably the most complicated thing. Ed, uh, oh, he'd kill me, Holiday was uh, the chairman of the transportation committee at the time and was the primary author of the bill. I was a secondary author to mm -hmm. give it the imprimatur of the speaker as well, which carries some weight. Um, so yeah, it was, it was good stuff. And the other thing is we had the street cred to have, and this is why we worked it up this way. We had the street cred to have a tax cut. I'm sorry, a tax increase. Right. Because we had this record of 15 tax cuts over 14 <laughs> yeah. years yeah. with no increases during that time. Cuts or eliminations, I should say, because we eliminated some taxes on the way. So that that was that is where long-term planning, long-term vision, which generally comes from the legislative body rather than executives yeah. who are you know there for a sh short period of time, is helpful. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, let's see. So shifting gears a little bit to some like more specific questions um, in the newspaper. I read that you appointed some Democrats to committee chair positions. Yeah. Boy, that was a shocker. Um, yeah. So I always tried to the, the speaker gives on organization day. The speaker gives a uh, opening day speech, which I always. And sometimes it's simple, you know, like, oh, welcome back. We're going to get to work. Buckle right. up. Uh, I usually viewed it as my opportunity to give the state of the state equivalent mm -hmm. and set the tone. I've got a copy. I've got copies of each one uh, that I gave uh, over the years because I'd write it out and fold and make notes of it, let, let the staff fool around with it as well. And I always like to have a gasp in there someplace. We're going to do this. <sighs> have a gasp come from the crowd. So, so I yeah. did speaker once in 2005, 2006. And then had four years as minority leader, which is really somewhat unprecedented because usually if you lose the majority, people your caucus chucks that person and moves on to the next. Right. Uh, but I, you know, worked through with our team, and everybody knew that the the items that beat us, the uh, toll road and daylight savings time, were important for Indiana's future. So when I was re-elected as speaker in 2010. Um, I had decided that I was going to try to really exemplify bipartisanship and try to, you asked what needed to change, you know, that, that, yeah. that, that bipartisanship had uh, gotten a lot shallower because of the two 50 50 uh, experiences mm -hmm. and the campaigns, et cetera. So, so I contacted, after winning the election, I contacted two of the more conservative Democrats, one in leadership, Chet Bobas. Uh, who was the speaker pro tempore for for several Democrat speakers? Yeah. Uh, boy, his name's going to escape me. At least from Jeffersonville, businessman. Occasionally cast a vote with us in the minority, and uh, was viewed as a conservative. I called them both, tried to get them to switch parties. Okay. Because there were in that election nationwide, there were quite a few Democrat switches in the legislature in yeah. other states. So I called both of these guys and uh, Steve, uh, Steve was the other guy's name. Uh, anyway, I called them both asked if they wanted to change parties and they 
both said, no, I just can't. And I'm not yeah. going to do it. And I said, well, I tell you what, I'm considering appointing a couple of Democrat Democrats as committee chairs. Would you be willing to do that? And they said, yes. So it will not be easy uh, mm-hmm. because there'll, there'll be people on both sides that don't don't like it. Right, right. So, uh, so I announced, I told my leadership team, but not our caucus, my leadership team of, you know, six, sure. eight of top leaders in our caucus and, you know, cleared it with them and they gave the pros and cons and some were for it and some were against it. I said, well, I'm doing it. So I announced this, that toward the end of my speech, I said, uh, and I'd like to announce that there are going to be two Democrat committee chair. I'll be appointing two Democrats as committee chair. And there was just this, oh, oh <laughs> from the membership. Oh, my God. On both sides. Yeah. Republicans were shocked. It had never happened in our state, then 194-year history. No one had ever appointed a person from the other side as a committee chair. And uh, so, so there were people that were upset because that means there were going to be two Republicans that wouldn't be chairman right right pat bauer was upset that i hadn't asked him first who he would recommend and he called it a stick in the eye yeah it was a bipartisan it was a stick in the eye um and but it it worked out fairly well again i kind of appointed people their vice chairman to be their close watchers Mm-hmm. And I always had a committee chairman meeting. It was then political strategy, usually. Well, that the tone of that had to change with the two mm-hmm. Democrats in there. I did it again. Uh, Chet Dobas left the legislature. I did it again with Steve, whatever the name is. And uh, it, it just it just didn't work. So okay. it was an experiment that I, I didn't appoint anybody. Then the fourth year after that, I, I just stuck with all Republican. I called Steve first and said, you know, this just didn't work out. Right. Uh, because the committee chairman, I mean, they they can decide which bills move forward. Right. What gets heard or not. Yeah. It, just, yeah. it, just, it was not, it was an experiment that was tried that wasn't <laughs> best. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I got to tell you a story. So I go to the National Speakers Conference yeah. in 2012, mm-hmm. and there's a roundtable of uh, speakers of the House, Republican and Democrat. This is in like Nome, Alaska or someplace. And uh, the Alaska speaker is running this and saying, well, what does everybody want to talk about? And there were two or three topics. And I said, I'd like to talk about uh, how we expand bipartisanship in our legislative bodies. I appointed two, uh, two representatives of the minority party as Democrat chairs. And Greg Chenault, I think is his name, that was the Speaker Chanel out of Alaska says, well, I would never do that in a million years and just moved on, moved, you know, didn't let anybody else speak, moved on. So that's why I met my friend, Mississippi speaker, who still is Mississippi speaker, Phil Gunn, yeah. who came up. I had met him before. He comes up to me after he said, Speaker Bosman, I want to know, I want you to know, I saw what you did. I, said, uh-huh. I did it too. Yeah. And I said, well, why didn't you say something? He goes, well, I'm not getting out in front of that. <laughs> So, so there were, and there were, I found out later that there were one or two other speakers of the house yeah. in other states that had seen that announcement and thought, well, that, you know, that's really great. I'm going to try it too. I have no idea how anybody else's experiment went. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So that was, that, that was uh, interesting. 
Yeah, I bet. That, that must have been an experience for sure. It yeah. was. It was. <laughs> um, I, I also saw that you had created, I guess, like the nation's first statewide voucher program for low-income students or something? Yes. Yep. I'd okay. say that on the uh, list of things, not most controversial, although that would have to go on that list also, but most yeah. important, Yeah. I would list that one. Uh, as one of the most important legislative efforts I was involved in. And I was really the, ad, the principal advocate in the mm -hmm. legislature behind it. I, I was actually the co-author because Bob Baining, Representative Bob, Bob Baining, who was the chair of the Education Committee, had advocated it for so long. It went past with just his advocacy, but the speaker yeah. has, has some imprimatur, as I said earlier, that yep. they can get things done. Uh, and yeah, so we, we got that through 2011. That was one of the things that the Democrats walked out over. Mm -hmm. uh, but once they came back, we knew we had the votes for it. And, you know, I've been in, around education my entire life, um, around educators my entire life, served for a couple of years, with, with mm -hmm. the I mentioned. And uh, I have been thanked by low-income families, a lot of minority, uh, for for that revision more than anything else I've done uh, because I you know, had moms and dads crying saying we never thought we could give our children the kind of education we wanted them to have at mm -hmm. Heritage Christian or Ron Colley or you know St. Barnabas wherever it may be private school um, and it, it's made and my hope for it was that it would create competition mm -hmm. also because we, we had done all these regulatory attempts to improve public education uh, most of them sticks, some carrots, uh, but you know I was a firm believer that competition would could change things. And I remember being at a Lawrence, you know, one of those meetings I would go to as the legislator. You asked how we knew, you know, what people wanted. I went to a always oh, a couple times a year. I'd go to the Lawrence Township Parent Teacher Association meeting (PTA), and uh, of where we lived and where I represented. And I remember the superintendent at the time it's not dr smith who's there today it was somebody before him saying telling the teachers i was sitting at a teacher meeting first i said look school choice is here we've got to compete we have to up our game we have to uh, be better we have to be more attractive we have to have better results and i thought i didn't say it you know but i had a giant bubble above my head saying this is just what i'd hoped for mm -hmm. and that didn't mean there weren't people that were upset about it there were plenty of them again sure ISTA poster boy, right? Yeah. On the yeah. negative post, on the build, on the uh, dartboard. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's important for it's important yeah. for families. Interesting. Uh, now, I heard you mention a lot about like the 88 session and then the other uh, split session. Was it? Did you find it uh, like good for getting legislation done, or do you? Th or was it a mess? Terrible. That's terrible. Okay. It was awful. So we didn't have any. The state constitution doesn't provide for a split 50-50. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't in leadership in the 88 one. I was in the 96 one or whatever the second one was. We, we had to, They had to make up rules. And what they did was they had co, you know, we call them stereo speakers. Uh, Mike Phillips, the Democrat, would be the speaker one day. Then Paul Manweiler would be the speaker the next day. There were co-committee chairmen. Every co-committee chairman had five get out of bills would pass on a divided vote out of committee mm -hmm. um, and then yeah. there would be 
five get out of jail free, get out of committee free cards, and then ten okay. for ways and means where I was serving. It was just, you know, what one side did, the other side undid the next day. And <laughs> it was a mess. We passed all kinds of legislation, and the Senate wasn't having anything to do with it. So it, it was, the 88th session was a waste. Um, the that's That was also, I called that the Boonville Death March. Okay. Maybe that was the next session, the Boonville Death March, because Mike Phillips yeah. was from Boonville. We met all day, every day, except most Sundays. We met, you met on some Saturdays through Valentine's Day mm-hmm. and in a short session. And passed hundreds of bills and none of them became law because the yeah. Senate deep six them all. So yeah, the Boonville Death March. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> um let's see. So how would you summarize your time then overall uh serving the General Assembly? You know, it was a uh it, it was a, the experience of a lifetime. Um the opportunity to serve others, uh, to improve lives, to improve our state's economy. Yep. I had a list. I started out with uh, the 2002 list of where we were last in all of these national ratings, literally last, or 45th. And I was just looking at them again, again, through this cleanup. And then I kept a list about what's great about Indiana. Had the staff keep the list about what's great in Indiana. And you know, we were number one in lost jobs in in uh, technology prior to 2004. We uh, were last in the percentage of our workforce that was in. So I can still give the speech. Last in the percentage of our workforce that was in professional management or administrative positions. Number one in bankruptcies in the nation. <laughs> Indiana was. And yeah, and then uh, and then the. Oh, this must have been from a speech I gave. It's 2002 group set out. 2004, we got our our chance. We pledged honestly balanced budgets, eliminate crushing debt and pension liabilities, make our state the place to work, live, and build a business. Streamline government, free business through debt deregulation. 13 tax cuts then in 13 years, 68% less debt than 2005. Fully funded funded. Pensions in Indiana, AAA rating with all three rating agencies, stepping to the lowest corporate income tax in the nation, lowest income, personal income tax among 41 states with one. And then I've got all these number one. Indiana ranks first in the Midwest, fifth in the nation, and Chief Executive Man- Magazine's annual Best in Worst States survey. First in the Midwest, eighth nationally in area development's top states for doing business. First in the Midwest, eighth nationally in the Tax Foundation's business tax climate for 2017. First in the Midwest, fifth in the nation for best business climate and business facilities 2016 state rankings. First in the nation for education reforms 2015 parent power index. Seventh in the nation in the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council's Small Business Policy Index for 2017. Third in the nation as the best place to do business in the Polina Corporate Real Estate 2015 top pro-business state. Sixth in the nation for economic outlook in Alex 2016 rich states, poor states. First in the nation for having the best state government in the U.S. News and World Report list of best states. People got so the Democrats got so tired of hearing me say that all the time. Yeah. Uh, 
because I, I mean, I took real pride in that. We were there. I was there. I was the only consistent leader because the governor right. three times. Yeah. The Senate leadership had changed. I was the only leader present for all of these things. Uh, this dramatic move uh, from last in the nation in so many areas to to first in the Midwest and first in the nation in many of those. I don't mm-hmm. take all the credit for it, but I do take credit for keeping people focused on uh, a goal. Right. Doing what I said early on was always my goal. Look a decade or 20 years down the road, try to figure out where we want Indiana to be, which was at the top of the list, not the bottom. And, um, and make strides every year, every legislative session to try to get there. So, you know, I have our staff, Tyler Campbell, our other research, Jeff Spaulding, our other research people, keep me yeah. posted on all of these constantly. Uh, when a list would come out like that, why, you know, why are we 15th in the charter uh, list of charters, best charter school states? And we became first mm-hmm. on that list. It's not on this list. I must have been talking to somebody that might not have thought charter schools was a great idea because the list was it ultimately made two pages. Yeah. Uh, and I take, honestly take great pride in that. And if there's something I can point to to say, well, what, what did you accomplish uh, in your 34 years of public service? I, I would say that list. Right. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, will we stay there? It's kind of like Ben Franklin's um, comment after the Constitutional Convention. Somebody on the street asked him, well, what, what have we got? And he says, a republic if you can keep it yeah uh, so you know we're we're i don't know where we are on these lists today this list is three four years old uh but hopefully we'll have leaders and, I, and i'm confident we do uh that will continue to try to put economic success for hoosiers um educational success for hoosiers sure tax comfort for hoosiers yeah at, at the top very top of their list and, and with along with so many other issues that are of importance, but that, that's, you know, the original, I, this is another thing my dad said, the original department of health, education, and welfare is a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure. that's, that's what it's about. It's about people being able to have a good job so they can do what they want to do. They can raise the family that they want to raise. They can be successful, get the education for their kids uh, that they, they would like to have. And, uh, so, so I feel very fulfilled. I guess I shouldn't even say proud. I feel fulfilled. Yeah. Uh, in that regard, that um, we were able to accomplish these things and together, and a lot of people get credit. Um, and which is also why it was time for me to retire. Uh, two things, really. One, I was having difficulty coming up with my next list of things that needed to change. And, you know, when I, made my retirement announcement i got a gasp out of that one too um then i said it was time for the next you know i made a list of 72 items back in 2002 and 2004 it's time for somebody else to make their list and to put it in effect plus my staff said i wouldn't have fun anymore and i said yeah you're right i'm getting a little tired of the hubbubbery so right now i understand uh, let's see. So last couple of questions uh, before you have to go then. Um, so what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? 
Uh, yeah, I gave, gave a lot of advice along the way, particularly in the closing yeah. year, knowing that, that you know, I didn't know exactly when I was stepping uh, out, but I knew it wasn't far off. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time every session with the new people and trying to trying to encourage them. Um, and frequent advice I would give was, was twofold. First of all, walk across the aisle, make a friend uh, in the other party and or more. Hopefully somebody you serve on some committees with, somebody you can get to know, somebody you can go to lunch with. So you have a contact on the other side. Yep. And you may find that that's really uh, aids your and their success when you have a person from the other party that you can go to and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? What do you think the reaction of your colleagues will be? And the second one uh, was to develop an area of expertise. Uh, try to be the person when somebody would come to me and say, well, you know, how do I get leadership and you know, how do I become you? you know, whatever, speaker or chairman, yeah. then you have to be a person that when you get up to speak on some something, people say, I want to know what Representative X is thinking about this. Right. Or they look to see how you're voting on an edge, uh, on an issue. So it's pretty much so usually got to be in your committee, committee assignments. You know, you, you need to develop expertise. You need to read everything you can. Everything that comes through that committee, read every word of every bill. And if you don't understand it, ask somebody who does. Um, and, and try to be that person who uh, people say, wow, uh, if he's got that opinion, I'm listening, first of all, and I think I'm going to change my vote because so-and-so has recommended that. Yeah. So those would be two pieces of advice. I know I've, I've come up with more for national publications, that kind of thing. Sure. No, I understand. Um, so then my, my last question is, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? Um, well, first of all, that the people really do have influence. When people come together, signing a petition and mailing it in means nothing. Right. Uh, speaking with your legislator or writing a heartfelt letter like the person did whose uh, father of her child was a rapist in prison. Right. Yeah. That, that gets your attention. And yep. Um, causes you to, you know, stop and think. Causes a legislator to stop and think. So I also frequently tell people that want to have an influence to get to know your legislator. Go to a fundraiser, not so you write a check to them, but so you meet them in person, or go mm -hmm. to a meeting where you know they're going to be and introduce yourself and thank them for their service. And you know, don't automatically have some request first thing and every time you see them, but see them in a in a visit with them in a circumstance where you don't need something or you don't want, want to ask them to support something. Then when the time comes, when you do want them to support something, you go to them and say, hey, look, I don't like to bother you, but here's what I, I'm thinking on this issue. Where do you stand? Yeah. Hey, I've left one of my, my quote, achievements out. So okay. I, opened, I opened the chamber to uh, full vision on the internet in That's right. 2005 yeah. and six, others had done. I mean, John it was like live streamed. Yeah, this was this was honest to goodness live stream. Yeah. And then when I came back in 2010 for my second speakership, uh, one of my stated goals was to open every committee room also to live stream, and they mm -hmm. all were. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so 
I was asked once by Jim Schiller what I thought my legacy would be. And I actually, I said, I thought my legacy was that I had opened the chamber so that somebody could sit at home and watch what was going on. Didn't have to go downtown. He's, his response was, well, it's pretty early to be talking about legacy. Uh, okay, Ben, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.